Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now overwhelm us with your glory, with the uniqueness of who you are, and with the wonder of your ability to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, one who bears the sins of your people and forgives their iniquity. And at the same time, somehow, one who does not clear the guilty. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to know you, and we pray that it would give us life, and that it would dominate our experience of this world that you've made. We pray, Lord, that the knowledge of you would inform everything about us, that it would transform us, that we would be renewed and that we might fill the earth with your glory. Lord, we pray that you do more than we can ask or imagine through your word now, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I would ask you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 34, and Lord willing, we will be looking at the entirety of this chapter, Exodus chapter 34. As you turn there, I just want to remind you of what the Lord Jesus said in John 8, Chapter 8, verse 32, John 8, 32, the Lord Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And, and my prayer, my hope for you is that as you see who God declares himself to be in this passage, it will be an experience of the truth that will liberate you from, from so much that might otherwise hold you captive. As we think together about Exodus chapter 34, let's... Let's be clear about what has happened. So God has brought Israel out of Egypt, and he has sustained them through the wilderness. He's given them manna from heaven and water from the rock, and he's brought them to himself at Mount Sinai, and he described that whole process as him bearing them on the wings of an eagle to himself. And they've arrived at Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, God came down on the mountain, in fire on the mountaintop, and he spoke the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and then he gave to Moses the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 21 through 23, and then they inaugurated the covenant in Exodus 24, and then followed the instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31. And while Moses was up on the mountain getting the instructions for the tabernacle, the people were down at the foot of the mountain breaking the covenant. And, and, and they, were, they were worshiping a golden idol, ex doing exactly what the Lord had forbidden them from doing in the very first of the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me, no images. And, and there they are making an image and worshiping it instead of the Lord. Moses intercedes with the Lord because the Lord had declared that he was going to destroy Israel. And the Lord relents. But the Lord doesn't, at this point, change the terms. In other words, as we continue here in Exodus 34, what's going, what's going to happen is we're going to see the Lord make provision to renew the covenant, but the covenant that is renewed is not fundamentally altered. And, and I would... I would 
like to draw your attention to just a couple of statements from later in the Bible that get at the problem of what I'm talking about. The first of these is in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, where at the end of his life, as the people are about to cross into the land of promise, Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy 29 4, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So this is one big problem with the old covenant. And that problem, as, as is stated in Deuteronomy 29.4, is that the Lord has not fundamentally changed the hearts of these people as they enter into this covenant with him. Okay, so let me just be, try to be clear on what I'm communicating here. God gives them a covenant at Mount Sinai that they don't have the heart to keep. So they break it. And then he renews the covenant, but he doesn't give them the heart to keep it, as is, as is attested in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. And then later still, commenting on this situation, in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul makes this remark in, in Galatians 3.21. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And what, what Paul is commenting on is the way that God made these promises to Abraham, and then he later gave this Mosaic covenant to the people of Israel. And he says, is the law that was given to Israel through Moses contrary to the promises that God made to Abraham? And Paul says, certainly not. And then listen to these words. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying God did not give to Israel a law that would give them life and enable them to attain the righteous standard that was required by that law. Okay, so just to try to be really clear and really specific... They get out to Mount Sinai. They break the covenant in the midst of it being made. Moses intercedes. The Lord renews the covenant, but it's the same covenant that got broken before when they made the golden calf. God did not give them the heart that they needed. And the law that was given, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, was not a law that could give life. So the problem is that the people are dead in their trespasses and sins, and the law requires righteousness of them, and, the, and they cannot attain that righteousness. We need to bear this in mind as we look at Exodus chapter 34, because, particularly because of what Paul is going to say about this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So I would invite you to look with me at Exodus 34 now. And, and the first thing I want to do is just draw your attention to some phrases that only occur at the beginning and end of this chapter. So if you look at Exodus 34.1, you'll see a reference to the two tablets. And then the Lord, Lord says he's going to write. He, the Lord says, I will write on the tablets. Uh, and then he, he refers again to the tablets. And then in verse 4, you have another reference to the tablets. And also in verse 4, you have the statement, as the Lord commanded him. And then at the end of verse 4, again, the two tablets. And I just want to draw your attention to the way that uh, near the end of the chapter, in verse 29, again, we're going to read of the two tablets. And then in verse 32, these statements about how the Lord commanded uh, Moses, all that all, he, Moses commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. So the tablets and the commandments are, are referenced at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. In between these kind of bookends, two big things are going to happen. The first big thing is, is really the controlling thing, and, and it's going to determine everything about what Moses believes, I think, and about 
what the rest of the authors of the Old Testament believe, and I think it determines everything that the New Testament authors believe. And that is, the Lord is going to come down on Mount Sinai, and he's going to announce to Moses who he is. It's, it's the fullest and most direct self-definition from God of God in all of the Bible, in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So that, that's the first big thing that's going to happen between these bookends. The second big thing is the Lord is going to renew the covenant, and we'll see that in verses 10 through 27. So let's look at Exodus 34, verses 1 through 4. And what happens here is the Lord prepares for the covenant to be renewed. So they've, they've come to Mount Sinai, the Lord announced the terms, and they immediately start breaking the terms. God says, get out of my way, Moses, I'm going to destroy them. Moses says, please don't, please don't do that. The Lord says, okay, I won't do that. We'll renew, we'll renew the covenant. And this is what he says. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So just a couple of observations here. Notice how what's recalled is the way that when Moses came down from the mountain and, and found the people worshiping the calf, he had broken the, cap, the tablets, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant. So that, that note is recalling what happened in Exodus chapter 32. And note also how the Lord says there in verse 1, this is an amazing statement, I will write on the tablets. This is, this is remarkable that God himself, Moses is going to cut out these two tablets of stone, and God himself is going to write the ten words, the ten commandments on those tablets. If you look down at verse 28, at the end of that verse, he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten commandments. So the ten, the ten words, those ten commandments that we read in Exodus 20, the Lord himself says he will write them on the tablets. And then verse 2. The Lord says in Exodus 34 to be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And then he says, no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And, and we've talked about this to some degree as we've worked through these chapters. The reason for this, the rationale here is that the Lord is going to come down and as the Lord says, uh, just in, in the previous chapter, um, he, in, verse, in verse 20 of Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So the Lord is telling Moses, when, when you come up and I come down to meet you, you make sure that nobody's in position to see me because they could die as a result of that. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets. Now, I just want to make a couple of observations about these four verses. And really, there, there are two applications. Application number one, the Lord is his people's savior. The, these people are doing nothing to save themselves. They have broken the covenant. The, the, the tablets have been shattered. And the Lord is the one who's saying, I will renew the covenantal arrangement between myself and them. The Lord is acting unilaterally here to save his people. That's the way the salvation of Israel went. 
That's the way our salvation goes. The Lord is the Savior. We add nothing to our salvation. We don't start trying. We don't start taking steps toward God. No, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, like, like a corpse on the bottom, under the waters, lifeless, dead. And God comes down and gets us and brings us up and gives us life and creates a relationship with us. That's what's going on here between God and Israel. Second, second, you can see here that the Lord sets the terms for the relationship. This is not Moses saying, hey, Lord, how about if we do this? No, Moses is making no suggestions. Moses is making no bargains. The Lord alone is setting the terms, and the terms are his terms. It's going to be these ten, ten words. They're going to be written on these two tablets. This is how it's going to go, Moses. Nobody is to be on the mountain. They're not even to graze in front of the mountain. The Lord sets the terms. So if you're here this morning and you recognize that you need to be saved, the, the good news is that God is a capable Savior and he is ready to save. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That, so there's, there's one point of application. If you're here and you're not a believer, you need to call on the name of the Lord. Another point of application, though, is you come to him on his terms or you come not at all. He sets the terms. He's God. He's Lord. So, so you, you shouldn't be thinking something along the lines of, well, I'll come to him, but I'm not giving up this or that, that aspect of my life. I'll come to him, but I want to retain the way that I want to live, or I want to do it the way I... No, that's not the way it goes. They're his terms. End of discussion. So in verses 1 through 4, the Lord prepares for the renewal of the covenant. Now in verses 5 through 9, the Lord is going to proclaim his own name to Moses. As I've contemplated this passage over the years, I think that this was probably the most life-changing experience Moses ever had. I, I think that these moments, the moments when, when Moses heard these words probably brought together in his thinking so much that he'd experienced to this point of the Lord. And, and I think that probably everything in the rest of Moses' life was informed by and determined by, by what the Lord does right here in verses 5 through 9. So verse 5 the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And I just want to note here that the Lord has descended in Exodus 19. And then he, he descended again in Exodus 24 when he called Moses up into the mountain. And now he's descended again in this moment. And, and over at the end of Exodus 40, once they've constructed the tabernacle, he's going to descend and be in the midst of the people. But at this point... It's Moses alone up on the mountain when the Lord descends. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So Yahweh, that's what you've got when you see the word Lord and you've got the, the little uh, small cap R, the R that looks like a capital R but it's the same size as a lowercase letter. Yahweh proclaims the name of Yahweh. And, and it's fascinating to me that verse 6 reads, Yahweh passed before him. 
because this is the same terminology that's used to describe the Passover. When, when, when the destroyer, in, in, back in Exodus 12, when he passes over the homes of the Israelites, this is the verb that's used. And then when the people of Israel pass over the Red Sea, and then later they're going to pass over the Jordan River, this is the verb that is used. So this is a very significant word in the Hebrew Bible, and the Lord here is passing over Moses or passing before Moses. And it's as though he first announces his name. Yahweh, Yahweh. And then I would prefer if the translators put a colon here because I think that's what's going on. It's like the Lord is saying, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now here's what this means, that my name is Yahweh. And he's going to spell out who he is. He says, a God merciful. This, this word that's translated merciful is one of these beautiful Hebrew words that, that really communicates something about a mother's womb. You, you could, I mean, if you wanted to do it literally, you might say wombish, you know? That, that, that the Lord is wombish in the sense that he's merciful toward his people. You can think of a way that a mother is so patient and kind and disposed to forgive her children. And the Lord is saying, that's the kind of God I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious. And, and this term, gracious, often communicates that God is going to give to people what they don't deserve. And, and you can see how this applies to the immediate context. These people of Israel, they have broken the covenant. They deserve wrath. Moses has pled with God not to give them wrath. And the Lord is saying, okay, Moses, I'm going to be merciful and gracious with them. And then this next phrase, slow to anger, literally, uh, long of nostrils. And, and it seems that what we're dealing with is a kind of word picture that envisions uh, someone being uh, set off or their, their anger being kindled by them getting uh, spices or smoke, perhaps, into their nose. And, and when someone gets angry, they get hot because their nose is made hot. They're irritated by this experience. And the text is saying that the Lord is long of nostrils, meaning he's slow to anger. He, it takes a lot to set him off. It takes a lot to push him over the edge, to, to bring him to the point to where he's, he's hot at people. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in, and then here's this word, chesed, abounding in steadfast love and truth. So the Lord describes himself as one who is abounding in uh, steadfast love and truth. And this word that's rendered steadfast love here is a term that particularly in Psalm 136, they, they attribute everything that God does in Psalm 136 to his steadfast love. They attribute creation to his steadfast love. They attribute the exodus from Egypt to his, his steadfast love. They attribute the conquest of the land to his steadfast love. They attribute his, his ongoing love for his people to his steadfast love. So I, in some ways, I think this, this idea of God's steadfast love is like the innermost heart of God. This is who he is. But this is not a steadfast love that is divorced from a commitment to truth. So the next word, abounding in steadfast love and truth, 
communicates the way that God is going to uphold his standards. He's going to be faithful to himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. And then it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I think the implication is for thousands of generations. And then the next phrase, when it's translated forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, you could translate this bearing iniquity and transgression and sin. And, and as we've seen from what they do with the altar and what, the way that they anoint the high priest and the way the sacrifices are going to work, what's going to happen is an Israelite is going to lean on that sacrificial animal and then he's going he's to cut the throat of that animal and drain its blood. So he's transferred his guilt to the animal. The animal has died in its place. And then the blood is going to be thrown onto the altar. It's almost as though the, the guilt is transferred from the sinner to the altar, resulting in, on the Day of Atonement, a need for the, the, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies to be cleansed from the sins of God's people because it's been transferred to the dwelling place of God, almost as though God himself thereby has been bearing, taking the sins of his people. And that has profound, I think, ramifications for what we see the Lord Jesus do when he comes and he says, for instance, in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. I think he's suggesting in the same way that the temple bore the sins of God's people, I'm going to bear the sins of God's people. But, but here, uh, the Lord is identifying himself as one who bears or forgives. And I think we could say he is able to forgive because he bears iniquity and transgression and sin. And then he goes on, but who will by no means clear the guilty? And, and this is easy, I think, for us to to get our heads around if we just think about practical examples. If, if I were to steal your car, you would not appreciate a judge who cleared the guilty and forgave my transgression and didn't compensate you for the vehicle or restore it to you or punish me for my crime. You would not appreciate that. And, and we feel the same way about God, don't we? We, we want God to do justice. He must do justice. If he does not do justice, then life is absurd. Life is absurd, and there's no meaning to it, and there's no reason to seek righteousness, and there's no reason to trust him. But if he is a righteous judge, how can he forgive or bear iniquity and transgression and sin? Moses doesn't go into it here, but we know from other passages that there are two unstated realities. And one of these unstated realities is the need for a sinner to repent, to, to turn away from sin, and to seek mercy from God. And then the other unstated reality is God's ability to, to create atonement through sacrifice, which he provides through the tabernacle system and then ultimately through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So as the Lord identifies himself... He identifies himself as a God who is both merciful and forgiving and righteous and upholding of the truth. And, and he doesn't let go of either aspect of this. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
And I think, I think we could also say the guilty are those who continue in unrepentant sin. The guilty are those who, who continue in unrepentant sin. So if you want to be on the forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin side, not on the he will by no means clear the guilty side, you must repent. You must come to a place where you agree with the Lord on what righteousness is, on what faithfulness is, and, and on, on who he is ultimately, and what his rights are in setting the moral terms of the universe who will by no means clear the guilty, and then this next clause, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And, and there, there is this mysterious uh, way in the Bible where the Lord says, each man will die for his own sin. And he also says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And, and all I know to do is try to put specifics to these, okay? So on the one hand, Adam's transgression was visited on all of us, really. Every generation after Adam is born outside the Garden of Eden and born with the consequences of Adam's failure and transgression. And that is due to the righteousness and the justice of God. And then also within the nation of Israel... You could have a situation in the nation of Israel, in this covenant therein, where some of the children might be members of the believing remnant, and their father, they, their patriarch, is one of the wicked seed of the serpent, at bringing about the curse of the covenant and the exile of the people of the land, and those children who are members of the righteous believing remnant are going to be exiled because of the sins of the father. So, so you have these realities, both in terms of Adam and his progeny, and in terms of the people of Israel and their progeny, and then we experience this too because, because we can all testify to ways that we have recognized in particular, in particular weaknesses that we have, maybe particular inclinations that we have, and we sort of stop and we think to ourselves, I'm acting like my parents. <laughs> that, that's what my... And, and, and sometimes this is good and sometimes it's, it's not good. The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But there's a change, I think, that happens when we come to the new covenant where we no longer have this, this, this corporate uh, way in which the nation of Israel is going to be exiled from the land under the new covenant. Um, in, in Jeremiah 31 in particular, the prophet proclaims, each man will die for his own sin. So the Lord announces who he is, and he announces how he relates to the world. And, and in this, this fullest and most direct self-revelation of himself, he has identified for Moses that he is a God who upholds justice to create a context in which he will show mercy. And, and that, I think, is, is at the center of the theology of the whole Bible. God is going to uphold justice to create a context in which those who are forgiven understand what mercy is and feel the wonder and the weight of God's kindness and graciousness to them. And Moses responds rightly to this. Verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. 
And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. This is language that we saw in Exodus 33 last week. If now I, and it's language that recalls uh, Noah. O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And the Lord is going to grant these requests, but again... He's not changing the terms of the covenant. As we'll see, as we look at verses 10 through, uh, through 27, the covenant that's made here is almost an exact restatement of things that we saw earlier in Exodus 21 through 23 in particular. Uh, before, we, before we move into verse 10 and following, let me, let me just offer you a response to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And, and it really comes down to this. I think that if, if, you, if we get our heads around, if we get our arms around what the Lord says here, we, we will find that, that the knowledge of God is going to energize every aspect of our lives. The knowledge of God will inform every aspect of our lives. And I think that that is the way that Moses has structured this passage so that God's statements about himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are meant to inform and motivate what he calls the people to in Exodus 34, 10 through 27. So if you, if you don't have Exodus 34, 6, and 7 committed to memory, I would urge you to write down those two verses, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and, and commit these words from the Lord about who he is to memory. These should be words that are written on our hearts because I don't know of a place in the Bible where God more directly says who he is and how he conducts himself than this. And, and, and I think that, that what the Lord says of himself here to Moses was so filtered through Moses' thinking that it has informed everything he's written to this point, and it's going to reform, inform everything he's going to write from this point forward through the books of, of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's all determined and driven by who God is as he defines himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And then I think that every biblical author that, that follows Moses, they, they get their arms around this, they lay hold of this, they know God because of the way that Moses presents him revealing himself and, and these truths about God that he is both forgiving and righteous, uh, this this determines everything about the way the biblical authors think. And that brings us to uh, the renewal of the covenant, the Lord's covenant in verses 10 through 27. Um, now, this can be one of those passages, Exodus 34, 10 through 27, that you kind of read through and you, you and, and believe me, I puzzled over this passage all week long. I beat my head against these words all week long, asking myself, why would God follow this magnificent Mount Sinai moment where he, he, he declares his name to Moses with, with this list of regulations. Why, why do these laws follow God's definition of who he is? And, and, and I think that Moses has structured the passage, passage for us to help us get our arms around what's going on. So look at, look at verse 10. He said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Well, he needs to do that because they broke the covenant, right? So I am making a covenant. Now look down at verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And as so often, 
these repeated phrases, I am making a covenant, I have made a covenant, they're going to form a bracket around this material, verses 10 through 27. And then the Lord continues in verse 10, and he says, Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. The Lord is saying, I'm going to do things among the people of Israel that no other nation and, and nowhere else in all creation have been experienced. I will do marvels such as have not been in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And we can just think of the rest of the Old Testament and the way that the Lord blesses and keeps and provides for and works wonders for his people uh, through, through the rest of the Bible for, for illustrations of what he's, he's just announced he's going to do. Um, in verses 11 through 17, I, I think uh, the, the, the big idea here comes down to the, the, the fact that there is to be no idolatry in Israel. Um, and, and, and I think that the, um, uh, the beginning and end of this passage correspond to one another. So verse 11, he says, observe what I command you this day. And then verse 17, here's what he commands. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. And if we ask, well, well what would lead them to make gods of cast metal? I think the, the, uh, the answer to that is what's prohibited, particularly in verses 12 and 15. Verse 12, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. So when they go into the land, they are not to enter into an alliance with the unbelieving idolaters. And the purpose for that prohibition on these covenants with the peoples of the lands, the purpose for that is to keep them from idolatry, keep them from making gods of cast metal. Now look back at verse 11, where the Lord says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This statement is going to be matched uh, in verses 23 through 26. Look at verse 24. I will cast out nations before you. So I think those corresponding statements put these two passages across from one another. The big idea being the Lord's going to drive out the nations so they are not to uh, worship as the nations do. So verse 12, take care lest you make a covenant with the nations of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. And here's the, the reason, verse 14, for you shall worship no other God. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Verse 17, you shall not make for, for yourself any gods of cast metal. A couple of, couple of things to, for us to see here. Number one, to, to engage in the worship of a god is to engage in a marital-style covenant with that god. So Israel is to be faithful to the Lord, and their covenant with the Lord is to be exclusive. 
And to go outside that covenant to worship any other God is to commit spiritual adultery against the Lord. And then um, second, and here I want to suggest that this applies to us. What is Israel commanded here? They are commanded that they are not to make alliances with the peoples of the land and that they are not to embrace the symbols of the peoples of the land which reflect the religious practices of the peoples of the land. You see in verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim for you shall worship no other god. We need to be careful in our, in our thinking, in our affections, in our responses to life in this culture that we don't make the kinds of alliances that result in us taking on the symbols that reflect the values and the religious practices of the idolaters in the land. We must be distinct unto the Lord. And, and, and I, I don't know exactly where the line is going to be in your life. It's, it's probably going to be different in your life than it might be in somebody else's life. There, 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 may, be, there may be things that are okay for you to do that another person in the room might not, might not be okay to do that because of temptation to idolatry, because of what wearing that clothing or driving that car or whatever, visiting that store or whatever the case may be could connote or symbolize. But we are to be exclusively devoted to the Lord and we're to worship Him only. Now, after, after this, in verses 11 through 17, which basically says, no idolatry... Um, What we have that follows in verses 18 through 20 is all concerned with um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also known as the Feast of Passover. So I think this is all about redemption. So verse 18, you shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. Okay, so this is the Passover. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. You remember that uh, the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And because the people of Israel had put the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorpost, the Lord had redeemed for himself the firstborn of Israel. So he's saying all the firstborn of Israel are mine, verse 20. Uh, The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So all this stuff about the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 18 through 20, I think it's all about redemption. It's all about the way God saved them at the Exodus. Verse 21, and this is the center of the structure of this section, is about the Sabbath. So verse 21, six days you shall work. But on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. I think this is meant to remind Israel of the creation week. It's as though the Lord is saying in in verses 18 through 20, I'm your savior. I brought you out of Egypt. And then he's saying in verse 21, I'm your creator. And this is the way I made you. Six days of work followed by a day of rest. So you rest on the seventh day. And then we return to feasts in verse, verse 22. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, called elsewhere the Feast of Pentecost. And then uh, Pentecost 
has to do, it's the Feast of First Fruits, so the first fruits of wheat harvest. And then also a second feast in verse 22, the Feast of Ingathering. And when it says at the year's end, what it means is uh, the end of, the, of the, like the, the, the fruitful time of the year, the turn of the year, the end of summer, when you, when you do the harvest. This is the Feast of Ingathering, literally at the turn of the year, like the turn from the warm time to the cold time when crops aren't going to grow anymore. And that's also referred to elsewhere as the Feast of Booths. So what we've got is um, a, a section on the Feast of Passover and then a statement about the Sabbath and then a section on these other two feasts, weeks and booths. And then in verses 23 through 26, we return to what we had first, which is no idolatry uh, because the Lord's going to cast out the peoples of the land. So like in verse 11, I will drive out before you the Amorites. Verse 24, I will cast out nations before you. And thus, because the Lord is going to drive out those peoples, verse 23, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, at Passover, um, weeks, and ingathering, or um, as, they referred to, as, as the first one is referred to here, unleavened bread, and uh, as, as they're referred to elsewhere, Pentecost and booths, those three big feasts. Verse 24, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Okay, so the Lord is, is promising the people, you're going to need to go up to Jerusalem, which means you're going to leave your home, you're going to leave your flocks and herds, but I'm going to make it so that nobody steals your land, nobody covets your land. I'm going to protect you when you come up to worship me. And then in verses 25 and 26, he seems to address these three feasts. Verse 25 you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. That points back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verse 18. Or let the sacrifice of the Feast of Passover remain until the morning. Verse 26, the best of the first fruits. Verse 22, the Feast of Weeks is the first fruits of the wheat harvest. The, feast of, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. And then it, perhaps this last statement, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, refers back to the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, the big idea here is that the Lord is saying, no idolatry, 11 through 17. This is how you worship me, 23 through 26. Passover, 18 through 20. And then weeks and ingathering, 22, with Sabbath at the middle. And then it all concludes, as it began, verse 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, what does this say to us? The Lord's focus on redemption, that's the feast of Passover, creation, and then his provision for the people, which I think is what the feasts of weeks and the feast of ingathering are about. The feast of weeks, first fruits of wheat harvest, feast of ingathering at the turn of the year, this is all about the harvest of the land. Well, I think it's about redemption, creation, and provision. How does that speak to us today? Redemption. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are, we are worshiping the Lord in accordance with his instructions as we celebrate the fulfillment of the Feast of Passover 
and really all the feasts in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Sabbath and creation. We could say a lot about this. We could have wonderful conversations about it, which I'd love to have, but I don't have time to go into it now. I just want to say, Hebrews 4.3 says, we who have believed enter that rest. And I want to propose to you that the Sabbath rest was all about looking to the new creation. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And I think the author of Hebrews is saying something similar when he says, we who have believed enter that rest. So by believing, by trusting in Christ, we, we partake of the anticipated new creation and we enter into God's rest and we have the Lord as our shepherd leading us by still waters and, 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 and green pastures. And, and sheltering us, being with us, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then finally, provision, which I think these feasts are about. Feasts of uh, weeks and in-gathering. I think this is, all, this is all about the way the Lord provided for his people. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So we trust the Lord to provide for us today in the same way that Israel was to trust the Lord to provide for them then. So um, I'm I'm not going to finish the passage. We're going to have to come back, Lord willing, next week and look together at uh, verses 28 through 35. And I I think um, it's it's worth us taking some time there, particularly because of what Paul does with this passage, where Paul seems to say, this covenant came with glory. This old covenant came with glory, but it's a glory that was being brought to the end brought to an end, and he sees that glory being brought to an end symbolized in Moses covering his face. So we'll, we'll look together at uh, the end of Exodus 34 and 2 Corinthians 3, Lord willing, next week. Um, I, I want to say uh, this, though, today. Um, we want our experience of the new covenant to be driven by our knowledge of God. We want our attempts to live out the terms of God's covenant, where we celebrate his redemption, we rest in what he's done for us, and we look to him for provision for everything that we face in our lives, which is really what's going on, I think, in in these covenant stipulations. All of that is driven by the way that God has revealed himself to us as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. One who who keeps steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty, but visits the iniquity of fathers on children to the third and the fourth generation. We want to be those who know God. Let's pray together. Father, would you make it so that we recognize that there is none like you? Would you make it so that we have a taste for your goodness, Lord? Make it so that we have tasted and seen that you are good. And Lord, would you cause us to be satisfied with your steadfast love, that we might be glad and rejoice in you all our days? Lord, we we pray that you would deepen our understanding of the way that you've redeemed us, We pray that you would 
Help us to rest in you, to believe and enter into the rest that you've provided for your people. And Lord, cause us to be unshakably confident that you will provide for us. And Father, we pray that as we fear you, you would make known to us your covenant, that we would be the people who live like you are our God. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Lord, we want to be among the blessed. And so we pray that you would catch us up in your glory, cause us to be those who sing your praise, cause us to be those who are delighted by your steadfast love, those who stand on your truth, those who celebrate the way that you have borne the sins of your people. Lord, make us ever repentant. We praise you for the atonement that you've made in Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.